everyone, and welcome to episode 61 of Minds Over Money. I'm your host, Cameron Brady, and on this week's episode, I'm covering three headlines from last week that directly impact the economy, as well as having potential implications on your own investment portfolios. And those headlines are, Cooling demand for goods threatens to turn pandemic boom to bust. Worried about personal data leaks? Here's how to lock down your phone. And if the U.S. is in a recession, it's a very strange one. In addition to those headlines, I'm also covering another financial planning topic, and this week, it's there should be no financial emergencies. So sit back, grab a cup of coffee, and enjoy. This week's first headline is, Cooling demand for goods threatens to turn pandemic boom into bust. Surveys of businesses in the U.S., Europe, and Asia point to falling new orders as some factories turn to clearing backlogs from earlier demand. Factories around the world are reporting weakening demand for their products, a sign that the consumer goods boom that kickstarted the post-pandemic economic recovery could turn into a bust as surging prices and interest rates erode spending power. Surveys of manufacturers released last Friday told a similar story whether the factory was in South Korea, Italy, or the U.S. Output is falling or is rising at a slower pace, driven by declines in new orders, and particularly those from overseas buyers. When prices began to rise rapidly early last year, central bankers thought the surge would be short-lived because supply would increase to match higher demand. As higher inflation persisted, they stopped waiting and began raising borrowing costs to reduce demand. Now it seems higher prices themselves appear to be having the same effect, weighing on purchases even in places such as the Eurozone, where interest rates have yet to rise. This could help central bankers if it helps cool price pressures. The U.S. Federal Reserve is seeking to raise interest rates enough to curb inflation without causing a recession, what is called a soft landing. The risk is that demand falls too much, which could lead businesses to cut production and lay off workers, tipping economies into a recession. U.S. factory activity grew in June at the slowest pace in two years, according to the Institute for Supply Management's measure of U.S. manufacturing activity, also known as the Purchasing Managers Index. New orders fell for the first time in two years as customer demand weakened. Employment in the manufacturing sector also fell for the second consecutive month. A separate measure of U.S. manufacturing PMIs produced by S&P Global indicated that output stagnated in June as sales fell for the first time since May of 2020. Expectations for future output dropped to the lowest level since October of 2020. Respondents said that inflation, uncertainty over the economic outlook, and continuing supply chain disruptions had weighed on customers. In the Eurozone, factory output was down in June and was at its weakest level since August of 2020, according to S&P Global. Factories indicated that sharper declines are likely to come, with new orders falling at the fastest pace since May of 2020. As a result of blockages in global supply chains and staff shortages, many factories have been unable to keep up with demand during the rapid bounce back from the initial hit to demand caused by the onset of the pandemic. Now the surveys show backlogs of work rising at a weaker pace in the U.S. and falling in Europe for the first time in almost two years. One indication is a slowing in exports from some Asian economies that were big beneficiaries of the pandemic boom in demand for laptops and other pieces of electronic equipment as workers in the U.S. and Europe turned their homes into offices. 
Official figures released Friday showed South Korea's export growth slowed sharply in June, while data from Vietnam showed technology exports fell in June for the second consecutive month. Manufacturing activity in Taiwan shrank in June, according to the country's PMI, with export orders recording their steepest drop in two years. In China, factory activity expanded in June for the first time in three months, according to the official PMI for the manufacturing sector, as production ramped up following the easing of lockdowns in Shanghai and other major cities. But overseas demand was weak, the survey found, with new export orders falling. In another sign of weakening demand, the cost of shipping a 40-foot container from China to the U.S. West Coast was down 15% week over week, and was 14% lower than a year earlier. Rising consumer prices and interest rates have caused U.S. consumers to pull back in recent months, particularly on goods purchases. U.S. household spending rose a seasonally adjusted 0.2% in May from the previous month, the slowest monthly pace this year, with spending on goods falling 0.7%. After adjusting for inflation, overall spending fell 0.4% in May, and goods spending was down 1.6%. In particular, outlays for durable goods, those meant to last at least three years, have weakened considerably since the start of the year. Adjusting for inflation, durable goods spending fell 3.5% in May to the lowest level since December 2021. Lower spending on motor vehicles and parts accounted for more than three-quarters of the decline in durable goods spending in May, according to the Commerce Department. The cooling of demand for goods is unlikely to bring inflation rates down quickly since Russia's invasion of Ukraine has pushed global energy and food prices sharply higher. U.S. consumer prices were up 8.6% in May from the previous year. The European Union Statistics Agency last Friday said consumer prices in the Eurozone were 8.6% higher in June than a year earlier, the highest inflation rate on record. That was largely because of a 41.9% increase in household energy prices and an 8.9% rise in food prices. By contrast, prices of manufactured goods were up 4.3%. Although wages are rising at a faster pace than over recent decades, they aren't keeping up with inflation and household spending power is being eroded. In the U.S., after-tax personal income adjusted for inflation was down 3.3% in May from the previous year, the fifth consecutive month of declining real incomes. Economists at UBS expect consumer spending in the eurozone adjusted for inflation to fall slightly in the three months through September and flatline in the final three months of the year, before picking up in early 2023 as inflation eases. The economists think the eurozone economy will avoid a recession if only just. With global manufacturing starting to slow down as demand is eroded by decades high inflation, it appears that the global economic scales are tipping toward a slowdown, if not a recession. With inflation eating into consumer spending power and a shift in spending habits from goods to services this year, companies are scrambling to alter their manufacturing to avoid an inventory glut. This week's second headline is worried about personal data leaks? Here's how to lock down your phone. Your guide to identifying sketchy apps, revoking their access to your location and other data, limited ad tracking, and keeping web browsing private. There are always people after your data. Advertisers want to know what you're interested in buying, hackers want to break into your accounts and steal your stuff, 
While most services on your devices capture some personal data, your name, websites you visit, your network IP address, etc., apps on your smartphone tend to get more. Your phone is packed with GPS, cameras, and other sensors, as well as sensitive data such as your contacts and health status. Apps, if granted various permissions, could access all of that. This checklist will help you go through your phone and limit the amount of data you unwittingly share. Number one, perform an app audit. Yes, you should ditch some of your apps. Delete any downloaded apps you no longer use regularly. Definitely remove unnecessary free ones because many of those earn revenue from selling your data. Comb the service's privacy policy to see how it treats your data. You could even check news reports for potential bad practices. Bear in mind that when you delete an app off your phone, the information the developer and its partners already collected won't automatically vanish. You might have to contact them to request data removal, which can be frustrating. Number two, review access to data. Take a close look at the permissions you've granted your apps. Does your weather app really need to access your friend's email addresses? Not likely. Many apps that request access to location, Bluetooth, or contacts perform most tasks fine without them. When installing apps, be conservative with providing access. It's always easy to allow permissions later. Once apps are installed, monitor their data, battery, and storage usage in the settings. For most apps that require it, such as a ride-sharing app, only grant access while using the app. Don't worry, an app is still considered in use when it's actively using your location in the background, such as when you're waiting for an Uber. When location services are turned off, your device can still send location data to emergency responders when you call 911. Number three, limit ad tracking. Web ad trackers have for years followed your activity as you visit different sites. It's why when you search for earplugs for small ears, for instance, then click a link, those earplug ads will follow you around the web for months. Apple and Google are working to limit the effectiveness of these trackers and Apple turned off tracking by default. Google plans to phase out third-party cookies later next year. Number four, use your browser. Apps can suck up a lot of data from the sensors on your smartphone, much more than a website on a browser can. From a privacy perspective, it's better to access services through mobile browsers versus apps. Web trackers are still prevalent, but the protections built into mobile browsers, such as Safari on Apple or Brave on Android, can limit this tracking. You can never be too safe online, but a lot of people aren't thinking of their cell phones when practicing good online hygiene. The apps we download onto our smartphones can be devious in their data gathering practices. If you are looking to limit the sharing of your personal data, be sure to go through the security settings on your phone and turn off any features that seem out of place for your apps and be sure to delete any old apps you no longer use. This week's third headline is, if the US is in a recession, it's a very strange one. Economic output is down, but the job market is strong, unlike in previous recessions. The US economy has experienced 12 recessions since World War II, and each one included two features, economic output contracted and unemployment rose. Today, something highly unusual is happening. Economic output fell in the first quarter, and signs suggest it did so again in the second. Yet the job market showed little sign of faltering during the first half of the year. The jobless rate fell from 4% last December to 3.6% in May. 
It is the latest strange twist in the odd trajectory of the pandemic economy and a riddle for those contemplating a recession. If the U.S. is in or near one, it doesn't yet look like any other on record. Analysts sometimes talked about quote-unquote jobless recoveries after past recessions in which economic output rose, but employers kept shedding workers. The first half of 2022 was the mere image of a jobful downturn in which output fell and companies kept hiring. Whether it will spiral into a fuller and deeper recession isn't known, though a growing number of economists believe it will. Some companies, especially in the tech sector, have given indications that they're pulling back on hiring, though across the broad economy, the job market has rarely looked stronger. At the end of June, 1.3 million Americans were collecting federal unemployment checks, substantially fewer than the 1.7 million people collecting them on average each week during the three years before the pandemic, when the economy was considered to be exceptionally strong. The number of people receiving such benefits topped 6.5 million during the 2007-2009 recession and exceeded 3 million during the two earlier downturns. The official arbiter of U.S. recessions is the National Bureau of Economic Research, a collection of mostly academic economists who place dates on when recessions begin and end, going back to 1857, the first U.S. recession on record. One popular rule of thumb is that the economy is in a recession when gross domestic product, a measure of the nation's output of goods and services, contracts for two consecutive quarters, but that's not the way the NBER sees it. Its eight-member business cycle dating committee looks at a range of monthly and quarterly indicators, including output, income, manufacturing activity, business sales, and perhaps most important, employment levels. Then it makes a judgment call. A recession is a significant decline in economic activity spread across the economy, normally visible in production, employment, and other indicators. The indicators don't always move in sync. In 2001, output didn't decline much, and GDP didn't contract for two consecutive quarters, but the NBER called it a recession anyway. In 1960, inflation-adjusted household income rose, and that was a recession too. One common denominator has been jobs. The unemployment rate has increased every time, by as little as 1.9 percentage points in 1960 and 1961, and as much as 11.2 percentage points in 2020. The median increase in the jobless rate among all 12 post-World War II recessions was 3.5 percentage points. The U.S. didn't escape any of those recessions with a jobless rate below 6.1%. On Friday, the Labor Department will report nationwide figures for payrolls and unemployment for June, a potentially critical moment in the recession debate. Economists surveyed by the Wall Street Journal in advance of the report said they expect the Labor Department to report that the jobless rate held steady at 3.6% last month and payrolls kept expanding. The backdrop to U.S. jobs is now unusual. The U.S. has recorded more than 11 million unfilled job openings in six of the past seven months, 4 million more monthly openings than was typical before COVID-19 hit the economy in early 2020. In other words, demand for workers is abundant. At the same time, labor is scarce, in part because baby boomers are retiring, making firms reluctant to fire the workers they have. The size of the labor force, at 164.4 million in May, 
was slightly smaller than the 164.6 million people who were working or looking for work right before the pandemic. So even when people do lose work, there have been many unfilled positions available. Even the most pessimistic economists see a modest jobs downturn in the months ahead. About two in five economists surveyed by the journal in June said they saw at least a 50-50 chance that the U.S. enters a recession in the coming year. But among them, few saw a big increase in the jobless rate. They forecast a 3.9% unemployment rate at the end of this year and a 4.6% unemployment rate at the end of 2023. The U.S. has never had a recession in the post-World War II era with a jobless rate that low. History shows that recessions come in many forms. Some downturns have been long and deep, such as the downturn of 2007-2009 that sent the unemployment rate to 10%, others short and shallow, such as the 2001 recession that lasted 8 months. Others were part of serial downturns, as happened in the 1950s and 1980s, when recessions came in succession a short time apart. The 2020 recession, in particular, was unlike anything recorded in U.S. history, exceptionally short at just two months, and exceptionally severe. Companies cut 22 million jobs in those two months, 14 times more than they had ever cut in a two-month period during the post-depression era. This was a precursor to the turbulence still hitting the economy more than two years later, like waves in a lake after a boulder falls in it. Officials in Washington reacted to the COVID shock by flooding the economy with stimulus and boosting demand. Supply chains broke down in part because of COVID-related business closures around the world. The surge of demand and the collapse of supply then bred higher inflation. The Fed is now trying to slow it by raising short-term interest rates to restrain demand for interest-sensitive spending, such as on cars, homes, and business projects. What happened in the first part of the year in part reflected volatility in the economy that followed COVID, compounded by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Businesses drew down inventories in the first quarter after building them up in 2021. The U.S. trade position also deteriorated, meaning fewer exports and more imports. The inventory reductions were central to a contraction in gross domestic product at a 1.6% annual rate in the first quarter. Rather than build new cars or computer chips, companies took them off their own shelves. A Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta model, closely watched on Wall Street, estimates that economic output contracted again in the second quarter at a 2.1% annual rate. The model puts inventory reductions as the biggest downward weight on output. Inventories are a business buffer for surprises, and cycles of inventory building and destocking have been common ingredients in the early stages of past recessions. Firms at times produce too much in anticipation of demand and then have to pull back when the demand doesn't materialize. In past cycles, production declines associated with inventory reductions set off a series of events that caused recessions, including layoffs, household income loss, and then slowing consumer spending. One risk now is that inventory cutting leads to wider business retrenchment that feeds on itself, as happened in some past recessions. Another uncertainty is the outlook for home building, which is highly interest rate sensitive and has been another leading indicator during past downturns. New home construction dropped 14% in May from a month earlier, seasonally adjusted, a drag that could persist as the Fed raises short-term interest rates. 
Most post-World War II recessions have been associated with declines in residential home construction, though the hit this time may not be severe because building wasn't as overheated in recent years as it has been in the past. For example, in the first quarter, total U.S. spending on home building was still 22% below the pace of building at the peak of the housing boom of the early 2000s. Households are flush with cash too. At the end of the first quarter, they had $18.5 trillion in checking accounts, savings accounts, and money market mutual funds. That was up from the $13.3 trillion before the pandemic, boosted in part by several rounds of relief checks sent to households in the past two years. Continuing with a trend seen over the last few episodes, all the talk about the economy is pointing to the likelihood of a recession over the next 12 to 18 months if we aren't in one already. This one will be unlike any of the other 12 previous recessions since the end of World War II due to the strong labor market and historically low unemployment. But just because the U.S. has never seen a recession with lower unemployment than 6.1% doesn't mean we won't have a novel scenario for the 13th recession since 1945. Again, this is not a time to panic, but a time to prepare mentally and emotionally so you can guard yourself from making a behavioral decision when it comes to your finances and potentially harm your long-term financial goals. Review your investment strategy, double-check your cash flows, have a strategy for reducing income, and when to rebalance your investments to help prepare for the eventual economic expansion and stock market recovery. This week's financial planning topic is there should be no financial emergencies. Everyone who has lived through a recession understands the concept of a financial disaster. We all know that it's a dangerous world out there. Disasters seem to lurk around every corner. So how do you keep these financial disasters of the day from turning into your own personal financial emergency? How can you insulate your family from panic and devastation? By being prepared. Everyone should have a plan to deal with the disaster of the day. What do you do when your investments unexpectedly but temporarily decline by a third? What about the unexpected death of a loved one? or worse, a non-fatal debilitating disability? What about those unexpected needs for immediate cash such as car repairs, a hot water heater blowout, or medical expenses, or an unexpected job loss? How do you keep these events from becoming a destructive force on your and your family's lives? You plan. You purchase life and disability insurance to help protect against the unexpected. Write wills and durable powers of attorney so that your family is taken care of should something happen to you. Pile up an emergency cash reserve, make a budget, and pay off your credit cards. Open a 529 account for each of your children and put some money into them each month. Invest 10% of your paycheck for your dream retirement from the first day of your job to the last. Diversify your investments with the world's best companies domestically and internationally. Be disciplined and buy every month regardless of current market movements. Sell only when you need the cash, and then only when the markets are not in freefall. Be patient and have faith in the long-term prospects of the world's greatest multinational companies, and learn to love dividends. And turn off the financial talking heads on TV and social media. Their job is to incite panic and push the disaster of the day to increase trading for the commission-hungry Wall Street firms. Turn on the Home and Garden channel and relax in the knowledge that your financial house is in order and you are little affected by the next financial emergency. 
having a plan in place for life's what-ifs can do wonders for your long-term financial goals and objectives. Your strongest asset in planning for financial success is time. Make sure you aren't handicapping yourself and your family by failing to plan and leaving yourself open to making harmful emotional decisions in times of disaster. If you and your life savings are being ignored or feeling taken advantage of, come join our family. We are a family-owned financial planning and investment advisory firm who promise to treat you like family. No products, no hard sell, no gimmicks, just honest advice based on our four decades of experience. If you have any questions on this week's episode or are interested in getting an unbiased opinion on your finances, please give us a call at 440-235-2100 or email me at cameron at michaelbradyco.com. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Uh-huh.